Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hi, Sabrina. So excited to have you on the show. You are a female founder. You're tackling the community space. You have previously worked at the Singapore Economic Development Board and worked at multiple startups in the region. So I'm excited to hear your story. Super excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Sabrina, for those who don't know you yet, could you share a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I graduated from SMU with a double in accounting and finance, spent a couple of months abroad in Barcelona at Isade. So there I was studying things like anthropology and marketing. So yeah, as you mentioned, I started my career in the EDB. It was a real steep learning curve coming out of school because we got to interact at the global Fortune 500 C-suite level. At that time, I was helping to organize. I was part of the organizing committee for that. It was like the World Economic Forum equivalent here in Singapore. So I was also a publicity lead. I found myself having to negotiate deals with CNBC, Bloomberg, etc. So very steep learning curve. I still remember this fun story, which which I have from that time, when I was actually stuck in a lift with Jack Ma, trying to figure out how to make that small talk. So yeah, that I think pretty much set the trajectory for the rest of my career. After the EDB, I took a leap into video games, actually. And this is something a lot of people don't know about me. I've been a huge gamer since I was six. First games I was playing was those war strategy games, like Age of Empires, a huge fan of that. So I started my career in Ubisoft and was there for a couple of years, heading up uh, strategy operations for the region. It was a really, really fun time. Had the best mentor who was also the MD. So I had a lot of fun working with the teams there, building the games. At that time, we were looking at how games were even changing as well, away from box games into live games. You have communities, things like that. So it was a really very exciting time. Then I decided I wanted to cut my chops in startups. <laughs> so I jumped from the pen into the fire where I was heading uh, operations at a clean tech startup in Singapore. And then more recently, now I'm working on Soda. Awesome, Sabrina. So what were you like growing up? Were you entrepreneurial? You were gaming? What was that like? I'm the only child. I think I grew up very independent. I had to get used to being alone all the time. Maybe that's why I spent so much time gaming. So it was huge in gaming. I think because even from a very early age, my parents introduced it to me as a way to learn things. So I used to study my science and math through playing games. And that actually helped me do really, really well because I spent hours on that. And then, of course, on the fun side, it was things like Age of Empires, where we actually are strategizing about how to build your empire and things like that. So gaming has been a huge part of my life since I was six. And I think in terms of entrepreneurship, I actually think, and I don't know how it even came about, but I've always been somewhat entrepreneurial. So like one of the first things that I started selling to my classmates was those nerds candies. They come in like these boxes. And they're like these small little round things that I used to, I used to pick it up from the condo mini mart because for some reason they were selling it really, really cheap as compared to the school cafeteria. And so I would make almost like a profit of 80%. 
on each box. So that's what I kept doing. So I was selling them that. And then later on, as I grew a bit older, I was selling like oil blotters by sheet because I don't know why I was all the rich then. So I think it's always been kind of there even when I was growing up. You're amazing. I love this kid selling candy. It feels like this common index or indicator of future entrepreneurial activity. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting because we also share the same alma mater at Anglo Chinese School Independent. Yeah. So yeah. there we go. ACS forever. Yeah, ACS forever. What's interesting is that we had this background and you ended up choosing to join the civil service. Yeah. So what was that like? When I was graduating, it was really like, I was choosing between two really. And civil service wasn't like my first choice because at that point I was coming out of SMU, everyone was kind of funneling towards investment banking, to be honest. Everyone was going there. It was finance or nothing. And I was kind of actually on that path until I found out from my seniors and they were, I was like, oh, how's your, how's your work going? And they were telling me that I'm, they're spending their time bringing coffee around and making pitch decks. Um, I guess that's how it all starts, maybe. But I was like, do I want to do that right off the bat? So I wasn't sure. And the opportunity to join the EDB came along. And that's when this whole Singapore Summit thing was started, where it was promising a huge exposure for especially someone just newly coming out of school. So I was like, why not? There's no better way than to get that kind of exposure. So that's how I actually ended up in the EDB doing that. Yeah. So what was that experience like? Because a lot of people see it as a relatively common path in Singapore, but across the region, Southeast Asia, it's a pretty uncommon thing to join a civil service. So what does it mean from your perspective? What was it like? I actually think that there was a lot to learn there. I mean, because you're expected to kind of interact with people on such a senior level, you kind of have to grow up fast. And what was great about like the EDB specifically is that there are so many brilliant people. And these are cream of the crop who have gone to all your top universities and come back. And so it was really great being part of such a strong, like brilliant group of people that really challenged you to push yourself all the time. It was a very dynamic, forward-thinking group that people may not necessarily think that way of when you're talking about like the government. So it's not what people think, for one. And secondly, there was a lot to learn. Even, I think, some of the best practices, because everyone is so meticulous, there's like, there are processes to things. So it kind of teaches you some of these hygiene standards and best practices that you may not pick up elsewhere. So I, I felt like it was a great place to start. Any tips for people who want to join the civil service, I guess, but I think have the inkling they may not want to stay there forever. How do you should people think about it? Yeah. It depends. Usually, people who don't want to stay there forever will probably leave before the five-year mark. That's my guess. But usually in the first few years, yeah, I would say it depends on which part of the government you're joining. But for EDB, we didn't feel like it was very rigid or anything. It was so dynamic. It was almost like any other MNC. It's just that maybe it's a lot of Singaporeans compared to, to elsewhere. Yeah, I think it's a great place to start because it gives you such a macro perspective across the board, like across different industries, verticals. You kind of see it at that level and you're able to kind of move between different different verticals and areas before you actually choose to maybe specialize in one. And I think that's a great place to, to get your bearings. If it's so good, etc., why did you choose to leave the service? <laughs> good question. <laughs> Woo. Well, I think for me, I like to be hands-on. So for me, it was about 
playing a direct role in driving certain outcomes or working directly on projects. I think when I was in the government, at least for my role, it was a little bit of a step out. It's always at least an arm's length. And I wanted to be in the team itself. I think for me, it was also about a variety of experiences, as well as the diversity that I, I really like in private sector. And it was also about pursuing a passion and what opportunities there were for me to do that. And of course, when, when Ubisoft came along, it was like, wow, now I get paid to do the things that I love. Why not? And so I, I knew it was the step in the right direction. Okay, you've got to explain this one. Ubisoft came along. What does that mean for that to come along? Were you looking for it? Did they reach out to you? How does that work? Because yeah. you made a transition from that into gaming, which is very tech-related. Yeah. So I think I was at a point where I wanted to, like I said, get my hands dirty. <laughs> I was open to opportunities. I think it was, in, in life, there's a bit of, um, how would you call it? Sometimes coincidence or, or fate, what, what have you. So actually, the recruiters connected with me on, on LinkedIn. But at that point, a lot of gaming companies, etc., they were mainly hiring for technical roles. So what I did was actually put myself out there and I wrote to them and said, hey, this is my profile. I've been a huge gamer, a huge fan of all your top titles, played all of them. This is where I could potentially value that. And if you have a position that is suitable for someone like me, let's have a chat and see where we can take it from there. So it was almost like being opportunistic, really creating your own opportunities sometimes. I think that for me really worked out. When you think about all of that, you obviously made a decision to join. So why join? I guess I'm still, is it just because you love the game so much or because the push versus the pull? Talk us through that a little bit. I think for me, it was actually, I never really believe in, I don't know, I've just never been in situations where it's been a major push factor. Usually I'm quite happy and I'm doing well where I am. But for me, it was like, you only have this much time. So what are you going to spend it doing? And I feel like you have to be inspired. You have to be excited about what you're doing and building. For me, I wanted to pursue a passion. And that's why I took the leap into video games. And it was definitely a huge shift. I mean, it's going from government all the way to the other side of the spectrum to highly creative, very, very different space. And I had people asking me, oh my goodness, did you just move into video games? What are you doing in video games? Didn't you just come from government? Everyone was like pinging me uh, all of a sudden. So I think it was quite a shocker. I've never really made conventional decisions, but this was a clear case in point of that. But yeah, it was, it was to further a passion and eventually build out something in that direction. So you started to hint a little bit about the culture shock and change from one place to the other. Mm. So what was that change that you noticed upon working at Ubisoft? <laughs> Very interesting question, Jeremy. I think firstly, gaming industry as a whole is very, very male-dominated. I think I cannot tell you how many times I was probably the only woman in the room and how many times I was the only Asian in the room. So it was definitely a huge, huge culture shock going there. That was one. I think secondly, it's a very creative environment. And you see that not just 
in the people that they hire, but also the way things are done. It's very, very different from when you're heavily process-driven in the government. Here, it's more about experimentation. It's about trying different things and seeing what fails and what doesn't, doing a lot of testing. I think in product, we talk a lot about A-B tests and things like that, that kind of stuff. So it was very different. I think even the whole process behind the way they do ideation about games was much more loose. And oftentimes, I guess, in any creative field, sometimes people are lost for some time before they find their path. <laughs> Whereas in the government, it was like, you're always working towards something clear and you have a vision, foresight for like five, 10 years. So that was very, very different. That's really interesting because there are two parts of it. It's like the creativeness as well as the, I guess, the gender ratios and representation. How do you feel for you, I mean, to be the only Asian and woman in the room? I mean, I think a lot of people often talk about that can be feeling lonely or difficult. How are your thoughts about that? I would say that at the initial stages, especially because they knew I was coming from the government, I definitely had to prove my chops. I had to get my street cred up. <laughs> because for one, people usually assume, oh, you're a woman, you don't really play games, what are you doing here? Or like, there are a lot of, I think, ideas that people have when they, when they look at maybe someone like me. So I definitely had to prove myself. I remember in video games, when we make a game, it's like over a couple of years. So some of them can be five, six years in production. And in between that long overarching timeline, there are all these little milestones where we check in with the teams to see how the build is going, how the game is progressing. And we would play the builds up to whatever stage we're at. So I remember very early on when I just joined Ubisoft, I think this was like the second meeting, maybe in like my second week of work, we had to go for a milestone meeting. And these are with the top senior level devs who have been working their hearts out on this game that they're presenting to, to the, the management team. And so I was sitting next to the MD. At the end of that, the senior producer passes the console controller to the MD and says, okay, now you can play the build. He looks at me. He says, Zabrina, why don't you play it? And I'm like, ooh, this is a moment where I either fly or I die. <laughs> and at that point, I was so nervous, but I'm like, I have to prove myself. This is not the time where I want to mess up the rest of my time at Ubisoft. So I told myself, don't chicken out. Let's do it. Let's take a risk. I'm going to prove all of them wrong. So I took the controller and the senior producer starts looking at me and says, don't worry, okay, because everyone on the dev team has failed this level. Everyone has died. So I was like, okay, you know, that's, that's, the, that's the benchmark. I'm going to get past that. All I aim to do is survive. So that's what I did. And that was amazing. I think actually I would say that was one of the earliest pivotal points for me joining video gaming because after that, the producers were pinging me saying, Sabrina, your street cred is now through the roof. I was like, yes. <laughs> So I think that kind of set the stage for the rest of my career at Ubisoft and really, really helped a lot. It was really taking a risk, you know, having to prove yourself, being brave and sharing your opinions, no matter what the seniority. I think everyone's entitled to share opinion as long as it's rational and well thought through. So all that definitely helped. Yeah. Wow, I'm so amazed as well. So you trash all the developers and you survived the level. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a bit of luck, but I was still happy about yeah, having done amazing. that. Yeah. Oh, man, I mean, I, there's no guarantee if I was in your shoes that I would have uh, survived the level. I feel like my reaction skills and everything have fallen off a cliff, I would say. Just out of curiosity, 
there you are, and you're just like proving the cred. And I think it's interesting because proving the cred is such an important first 90 days yeah. thing for so many different jobs. I never thought about gaming industry as in like, yeah, can you game or what's your passion for gaming, I guess. Hmm. So that's really interesting. Out of curiosity, what games did you play back then and versus now? Wow, now as an entrepreneur, I hardly have time to play games, unfortunately. What I do now is watch playthroughs, and some people don't get that. I found friends who are like, why are you watching people play? And I'm like, you don't understand, I don't have time to play, so I watch them. <laughs> Wait, I do that too as well, so yeah. you're not alone at least. So you get me. So I used to play yeah a lot of war strategy games like Age of Empires. I used to play that a lot with the AC boys, actually. During the holidays, we would convene online at a certain time and spend the whole day playing. And then when I was in my teens, I was playing a lot of first-person shooters. I'm sorry if I'm geeking out here, but it was like Halo, Call of Duty... I don't know why. I have a feeling my dad secretly wanted a son or something. He kept buying me these games. So I kept playing them. It was like zombies, shooters. Assassin's Creed was one of them. So that's why I joined Ubisoft. Counter-Strike, etc., etc. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> well, my sister's always better than me at first-person shooters, especially Counter-Strike. Yeah. She got into all the clans, like MP5 clan, wow. etc. And nice. then I was not in any of them because I wasn't good <laughs> enough. <laughs> so there we go. And so there you are, you obviously you're learning your role in gaming in the private sector, and then you actually make a decision that you want to double down on this technical and tech career. So talk us through that. So I think for me, I've always actually been interested in tech as well as in the creative. That was what first got me into video games and later on now building Soda, which is a mash of all my favorite things. So tech, I've always been interested in, even in the earlier days when we were first introduced to a little bit of programming robotics in school. I was very interested in that. I think I joined the robotics club (laughs) and started doing that when I was maybe 10 or 11. So I was always interested. Tech, of course, it's a very exciting space. I love how dynamic it is and how it's such an enabler across so many different industries. So I knew that this was a space I would love to be in. But at the same time, at my heart, I'm a creative person. So I spent like years in music and the arts. So it was like, how do I combine all of that and find a space in which I can play and work in? So that kind of leads to where I am today, where we're building a product, working very closely with creating experiences for people. That is where I currently live, yeah. And what was it like to become a head of operations at a startup? Because there's an interesting transition. Yeah, I feel like with every leap or every career shift, it's always like a huge learning curve. As head of operations, it was about scaling the team, growing the team, growing our capabilities. When I first joined, I think I was employee number 11, there wasn't much in place in terms of like processes and, and things that would allow us to move a little bit faster. So I really had to dig into that and problem solve. One of the biggest things that I realized at that point was the stuff that you took for granted in corporate doesn't exist anymore. Back in corporate, it's like there's always someone to help you solve a problem. You can throw it to legal and legal. There's a legal team that will help you look through all the terms and tell you what's okay and what's not. You need to do hiring. You send that over to HR and they will manage it for you. But in the startup, with limited resources, limited people, <laughs> you kind of have to do everything. It's, it's a very team effort. 
But in a way, it was also nice because it was almost like a family where you kind of go through the highs and lows together. So it was another big culture shock for me, I would say, going from Ubisoft into a startup. But it was really great because we got to built from grounds up. We got to look at regional partnerships. And when I was there, it was we were doing something different. It was almost like Uber for clean energy is how I would describe it. And whenever you're doing something different, there's a lot of resistance. And so it, it was a very different life from what I previously knew. But at the same time, with each win came an immense amount of accomplishment, achievement, happiness that I don't think I would otherwise have been able to experience in the corporate environment. Yeah, it's interesting because you started at civil service, which is the biggest organization possible. (laughs) (laughs) And then you're going to Ubisoft, which is in order magnitude smaller and private, but still large. And now you're this pretty much an early employee at a startup. So talk us through a little bit more about what was that culture shift as well? So you, you know, there's no one else, you got to do it. There's no legal. What other changes did you notice as you went to that size? I would say the volatility was a huge thing. In companies of like 500, it's definitely not as volatile as in a startup because I felt like a lot of things were changing all the time. It's very, sometimes you have no choice but to be very reactionary because you're a small boat in the middle of a big sea. Um, And in the space where we were playing, it was before the open electricity market and things like that. It was a time of huge change. So it was constantly having to stay on the tips of our toes, constantly seeing what's in the news, what's coming out tomorrow, what's going to happen next week, and, and trying to plan ahead. And that's really, really hard to do. So being really, really quick and nimble was key, I think, being in the startup that previously you can be fast, but there's is not on the same kind of spectrum or velocity as in a startup. And then you spent a couple of years... And this is really interesting because now you decide that you want to become a founder yourself. Yeah. So how does that happen? How did you discover along the way? When were you like, yes, I want to become founder or set up a startup of my own? I think it's always meaningful to build your own thing. I've always wanted to build my own thing. So I think it started from when I started selling those nerds when I was eight. <laughs> so I've always wanted to have my own company. When I went into the startup, it was... Actually, with the mindset that eventually I would want to build my own. So I knew at some point that I would come out and build my own. And I was thinking about it for some time already. I was exploring ideas, thinking about different spaces and what I'm most passionate about, you know. And of course, coming out to start your own is also different from joining a startup. Now everything is on you. It's it's almost like it feels it's it's startups and startups, but it's still different. And so what really pushed me was I think some personal experiences. So for me, just a little bit of background, today we're building Soda as the home of communities so that people can interact with their various communities, whether it's like groups of friends or alumni, business groups, etc. We see it as a space for which they can connect with the people who are most relevant to them and have the necessary conversations that they should be having, the authentic conversations and, and gatherings that people can help each other with. And so it came from personal problem space where 
Firstly, I was looking for a co-founder and found that incredibly hard to do because it's harder than dating. <laughs> and so I was on every other platform that I could think of trying to look for a co-founder. It was incredibly hard because it's very hard to look for a targeted profile. People have to have the same sort of mindset as you and, and be ready to start a business. They have to be somewhat complementary to you. You have to be able to work together. There's so many things that you and Jeremy, you would know better than I do maybe even. And so it was super hard. The second time was actually when I became a mom and I was looking for playgroups for my daughter and I was trying to look for other light moms because we're kind of going through the same experience and, and being a new mom is a, is a difficult journey. Journey. So I was looking for people who were like-minded, moms who are also still very passionate about pursuing their careers, equally ambitious, but at that point in time, they're in the same stage of momhood as I was. And that was impossible to find. I, I went on websites, joined groups, parenting groups, uh, play groups. This is probably something that is unique to female users is that, you know, you get a fair amount of harassment. And I was like, well, why is it so hard to find a meaningful community to be part of? And that's what really pushed me out because I, I felt so sick. I literally felt nauseous and sick when I received some of those messages. I felt the calling to do something about it. Yeah. So let's talk about community. What's happening here? Why is there so much like harassment? I think one of the challenges with a lot of the platforms is that they're too public. When it's too public or when there's anonymity, People kind of hide behind that. There is no accountability of how you're supposed to behave or what's acceptable, what's not, because people get away with it. So it becomes almost like cowboy country. When we look at communities and meaningful connections, actually, usually there needs to be some basis for that. And what's interesting is they talk about seven degrees of separation. Most of the people that we need to actually meet or that we're looking for are usually maybe just in one tier out from the people that we know. So that's what we're really focusing on. And also because staying close to your immediate networks also ensures some sort of safety rather than randomly picking out someone from the street and hoping that that works out for you. It's interesting because in your past jobs, you also had a deal of community as well, especially in the gaming industry. I think the player community is also not the world known for civility or diplomacy sometimes. Mm. And I definitely remember that because my sister and I would also be gaming and right. she would get a bunch of harassment and I'm just like in the same match as her. <laughs> and I'll be like, yo, oh, like that's my sister, that's fuck, oh, fuck off, right? You know, like, yeah. Yeah, counter strike, counter strike is like A slash S slash L, question mark, why all this stuff? So yeah. when you think about designing community and how you think about it, what are some key principles that people should be thinking about to make sure that it's a, it's a safe yet valuable environment for people to be in? I think for one, it's about having very clear objectives. When the community is just running rampant and they're not driving towards anything, it's very hard to achieve any specific outcome. People kind of don't know why they're there or how they're even expected to participate. So that's one thing. The second thing is enabling people to participate. And we think that today, if we think about how do we let community members participate, we think, oh, let's just give them a chat group and they can talk. But the truth is 95% of them are not going to talk because you're just having one narrow channel or, or things like that. And it takes a lot for someone, especially someone who's new or hasn't had a history of participation, to stick their hand out and say like, hey, I want to say something. So people are not going to do that. 
So we're talking about breaking it down into like bite-sized interaction points. So today we're starting with helping people find small group conversations to be part of. But in the future, that interaction would take many different forms. It could be things like challenges, like, hey, Jeremy, I challenge you to achieve something that we're both pushing each other to do. And it's like mutual accountability. It's fun. It's engaging. And that's what we're really looking at approaching communities from that kind of angle that actually brings in also some of the stuff that I learned and experienced from gaming into unlocking the true value of communities and enabling them to actively participate. Like if you give someone a blank piece of paper, they're not, never going to know what to write. So they're going to just throw away the pen and say, oh, forget about it. But if you tell them, oh, I want you to write about A and then write about B, they will do it because they have some sort of guide on what is expected of them and how they can behave. What would you say is the power of community? I think there is a lot of collective wisdom in community. And I think that's one of the most valuable things that we could do. It's like, so for me as a founder, what I want to do is learn from everyone else's mistakes so that I don't make the same mistakes. And that shared experience, that collective wisdom is hugely, hugely valuable no matter what field we are in. Whether you're thinking of changing career, whether you're going through something like motherhood, I think we all know that kind of value. Secondly, we're human beings. We're wired to be wanting to be around other people. It's a very natural need and it's almost primitive how we're wired that way, even from the very early ages, like stone ages, where people kind of cluster together for safety. So I think it's also about that support structure where people kind of can understand and support you through whatever it is that you're doing. And we think that today we're thinking, oh yeah, I have like 1,000 friends on Facebook. The problem with that is that not everyone can empathize with your specific situation. And if someone cannot empathize with you, there's not much value that they can actually bring you or support that they can actually bring you. How do you think about power users versus lurkers versus members in a community? Power users, by power users, you mean like champions, right? I think there will always be some of those people who are more enthusiastic about certain things than others. So I always think that you will have a various different kinds of participants in any group. Like even in any social group, you'll have some that are more extroverted than others, for example, just as a starting point. I think that's inevitable. But the question is also, how do we unlock value from everyone else who may not be comfortable in certain, let's say, type A kind of settings? How do we create for them environments in which they would be comfortable in? So it's very interesting that you mentioned this because more than half the world are like introverts, actually. And these are the people who usually don't speak up in the community, yet they're also some of the smartest people out there. So how do we unlock it for them? Even today, when we're looking at group dynamics, one of the reasons why we are structuring things in small groups is because it makes them more comfortable. And so it's about creating environments in which people can participate and feel comfortable participating. I think that's how we can really unlock these other users and really close that gap between the super users and everyone else because there's so much value to be created if people are more active and engaged in what they're doing. They're also more likely to be responsive when there are things to be done. So you're saying a lurker is an introvert? Not necessarily. I think sometimes they just don't know how to participate. I mean, I wouldn't call myself an introvert. I'm actually an ambivert, maybe even leaning towards extrovert, but... 
I would say that in a lot of groups that I'm currently in, I don't really participate because I don't see a way in which I can contribute to a specific conversation at this point in time. So I choose not to participate, but that doesn't mean I'm an introvert in any way. Do you think there's a certain amount of engagement or ratios or heuristics that you feel you should design a community towards? I think it depends on what the outcome is. So back in the day when I used to run Filter Social, Filter Social was a platform, a social network, if you will, where we would bring together 50 to 60 people each month, curate a guest list, and we would organize a mixer for them to you know, broaden their social circles and meet each other. And we would actively be there to broker those connections. So in that setting, at that time, 20s, dating was like a huge thing. Um, it was top of mind for most people. So in that context, definitely, I think having a gender ratio, uh, paying attention to the gender ratio was important, just because that's the kind of outcomes that we're driving. If you're looking at motherhood group, definitely it's going to be all moms. That's going to be all women for sure. It really depends on the kinds of outcomes that you're driving. And there are times where it makes a difference and other times that it really doesn't. And sometimes we talk about how you try and group people of the same age together. It makes sense in some, but in other instances, if you're talking about, let's say, entrepreneurship, does it really matter that a first-time founder is like 50 or 20 or 30? I don't think it really matters because you're all going through the same shared experience together. So wrapping things up here, could you share with us a time that you have been brave? I would say leaving my job to start Soda was actually a big move for me. I remember making the decision and leaving. It's almost like you're out in the wild. I think that was very nerve-wracking for me. In fact, I think I shed a few tears because I was like jumping into the unknown. I've always been in environments where I could somewhat predict where I was headed or where I was going to land or go. Jumping out into the wilderness was very nerve-wracking. And it took a lot to just to say goodbye to everything that I knew. But at the same time, I think the journey of entrepreneurship has been such a wild ride of highs and lows that I think anyone who has never been a founder would not be able to experience or understand. And so I regret none of it. Uh, and I'm super, super excited about what we're building and, and you know, what we can potentially bring to the wider community. What's so scary about it? I think uncertainty is a very, very scary thing. It's like jumping and not knowing where you're, you're going to land. <laughs> I think that in its own is scary. It's like you don't know what's going to happen next month. Maybe today you build a product, tomorrow no one wants it. Or you build something small and you, you think it's nothing and tomorrow 10,000 people are on it and they're like, oh, we want more of it and you can't build fast enough. And I think in the startup environment, I mean, from my experience so far, Things just keep happening. Things change so quickly, rapidly all the time that it's sometimes quite overwhelming. And I, I think being able to stay on top of that as well as maintaining some sort of balance and being in the right headspace even or taking care of yourself health-wise, there's a lot of things that lie in the balance that we have to manage as founders. So definitely huge growing up experience, very nerve-wracking, but also tremendously exciting. How do you recommend founders manage their fear? I personally believe in facing it head on. I guess it always helps to tackle the root of the fear. For me, for example, fear of heights, I tackled by doing the highest bungee jump that I could find. <laughs> because I really think there's no way to run about it. 
Another way would be to break it down into smaller pieces and find out how to tackle each one of those before tackling the bigger one. That's how I would say we would do it, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Sabrina, for coming on the show. I'd love to paraphrase the three big themes that I enjoyed from this conversation. The first, of course, is thank you so much for sharing what I call your intentionality about your career, especially how you became a founder. I love how you started out in the Singapore Civil Service, which is the biggest organization out there. And then you kind of like work your way down four levels, right? Down to... <laughs> Ubisoft, which is a large company, a multinational corporation, to a startup, an early employee, to now being a founder yourself. And I love that very intentional path because you shared that you always had that vision of always having something of your own and it takes patience, takes time, but it's also the most uh, straightforward way to discover if your childhood vision was something that you actually want to do, right? And so I really love that plan. So few founders actually have that sequencing, which is so important. Uh, second, of course, is thank you so much for sharing about community design. I really enjoyed some of the high-level points around like personality types, extroverts, introverts, ambiverts, and how to think about how the community should be designed and to be effective for everybody. And very excited to see what Soda and everything else you built, especially in the past from Filter Social, is. And lastly, thank you so much for, I think, the fun tidbit, I guess, of being a female gamer and gaining cred about it. I thought it was a fun... Uh, Story because it's not just a hobby that you had as growing up, but also something that you have actually done deliberately and intentionally as part of your career, driving career decision, as well as gaining credibility in the first 90 days. But also something that is a way for you to articulate some principles of community since then as well. So thank you so much, Sabrina, for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Jeremy. It's been a great blast. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.